to think back for a second to when you were probably seven, eight years old on the playground back in elementary school. Thinking back to mine back at Ripley Elementary School where I went to first and part of second grade. And I heard some things on the playground that uh, maybe probably were much more sanitized than kids here today. But one thing that stuck with me that I heard for the first time, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, heard this at some point in your childhood, was a little rhyme that said, sticks and stones will break my bones, right, but words will never hurt me. And I heard that, and then I repeated it often because as kids can be ruthless on the playground and calling each other's names and, and so on, and, and, and we know that's partially true, right? We know it's not fully true because words do hurt. And I told you to think back because you may remember a time on the playground when somebody said something really mean or rude to you or called you a name, and it stuck with you ever since then. You would try to act like it doesn't bother you, but it does. Words have power. Words have great power and authority. And today, Paul is going to talk about the power and authority of the word, the gospel going out, but also in a bigger, more ultimate way, the power of God's word in general. His word has power. His word has authority. It has supernatural ability. And those are words that we speak to ourselves. We say, preach the gospel to yourself. We should speak to others, as Mitch mentioned, before Easter. And those words contain power that have the ability to cut deeply, to, to go into a place where other things may not have that same power. And so as we talk about that today, uh, flip over to 2 Timothy. We're working our way through the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and we're going to be reading through uh, verses 8 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. I hope that everybody here is on some sort of reading plan in your own, you're reading scripture, you're, um, each day you're in there asking God to show you, reveal to you what he wants. And so we're going to read verses 8 through 13. Paul writes to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that does speak deep into our hearts, God. And I pray that today that Christians in here will work with your word and through the, work with the Holy Spirit as you desire to change us, to make us more like Jesus Christ through what we are looking at today and just your word in general. God, I pray that you will allow us this morning just to be open to the work of the Spirit to point out in our own life things that may be hindering us or sins that may be coming between us. God, I pray that you will allow us to be real and transparent with you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the busyness and the, what I'm going to refer to as self-centeredness of our lives, it's easy to get caught up and miss hearing from God. It really is. And it's easy for those who have a good routine of reading the Word to miss hearing from God because 
oftentimes we're in such a hurry, we're so busy, that we fail to recognize just the incredible grace and gratitude and generosity that God has extended to us through the cross. I was reading in a devotion book I read every morning, and it's called New Morning Mercies, and Paul Tripp writes this, that every morning God's generosity greets us, but we barely recognize it as frantically we prepare for the day. We don't often take time to sit and meditate on what our lives would have been like if the generosity of the Redeemer had not been written into our personal stories. And what a great reminder, because we are hurried from point A to point B. We're, we're people who are just crazy with schedules. And part of that is out of our control. Some of it is partly us to blame. But God meets us in his word. And as we're going to see today, and as we're going to look at today, is his word has the ability to truly make a difference and to change our mindset, to change our heart, and make us more like Christ. But I'm going to go back for a second, back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet was writing to the people of Israel, and here's what he said about the word of God. He said, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And then just a few chapters later, he writes this in chapter 55, verse 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. And that's God talking again to the people of Israel, the rebellious people of Israel, as always we find almost in the Old Testament. And at this time, Israel was in exile at a place called Babylon. And they were in Babylon under God's discipline for their sin. And Isaiah is telling the people that God's word would sustain them during their exile there and during their suffering there. And these two amazing passages of Scripture are bookend on each side of a, a long passage that deals with this promised future king that God is going to send to Israel and to all nations and bless all nations that would come in the line of David. So if you look between 40, chapter 40 and chapter 55, here is this incredible promise of that God's word is going to be active and living and come in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Scripture tells us, and, and came among us, dwelt among us. And so this is exactly the, kind of the idea Paul has in mind and, and may even have Isaiah in mind as he's writing to Timothy about King Jesus and he's declaring this age-old plan, this plan that has existed since Isaiah, but he's saying this plan has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This gospel that I'm preaching, God's redemption plan has been announced in Jesus. Jesus is king. Look back at verse 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, here it is, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And so Jesus was the promised king, predicted by the Old Testament prophets, and promised to the people it could not be stopped. God's word doesn't return void, it doesn't return empty, 
It accomplishes its purpose. God said he was going to do this, and he did this. And so Paul is essentially saying the same thing as Isaiah here. He's pointing Timothy to God's word as a source, his source of confidence. His source of confidence. And I think it's kind of like what I read earlier about Paul Tripp and about what he wrote about the generosity, the goodness of God, and how we often miss that is the fact that we have this incredible salvation and we have this incredible word that gives us hope. And we all know that. We say that. We say, I, what would I do without God's promises? What would I do without his truth to meet me, to help me in my struggles, in my dark times, in my circumstances? Yet we go to it generally in our minds, but not a lot of times not specifically realizing that each and every day we need this to accomplish the work that God has given us and the promise that he's given us through Scripture to live those out to make a difference in the world that we live in. And so God's, God's word is what sustains his people, especially as he's writing to Timothy and as Isaiah was writing to Israel, especially during times of suffering, during times of difficulty. And then the next thing he points to, he says, Jesus is his king, he's the anointed one, he's the Lord of the world, and this is a claim that most Israelites, most people of Israel, would have found astonishing and unrealistic had it not been for the truth, the fact, what we'll celebrate in two weeks, but we should be celebrating it every single day, is the fact that Jesus' resurrection is our source of confidence. God's word authenticated by the resurrection, that's where we find our confidence. And so Jesus, he's writing to Timothy, he's trying to build up Timothy, remember that, Timothy here is in this church. He's been inundated by false teachers and pressure to cave in. And Paul is writing and he's saying, look, remember Jesus. Think about Jesus. He faced down the Jewish opposition, the Roman powers, and he remained faithful to what God had called him to do, even to death. And then his resurrection demonstrated that he wasn't just a member of the line of David, in the line of David. He was the member, right? He was the one, the seed of David, to come and to save his people from their sins, the long-awaited Messiah. And so he tells Timothy, remember this. And you would think, Timothy, of all people, he's a preacher, right? He wouldn't forget. But history shows us that we as a people have a long line of forgetting, including churches. And we've talked about this over the weeks, but how many churches today have totally forgotten Jesus. There are many, many churches today where a pastor is standing up in front of the people saying things that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ, honestly. It's all over the place. We may not realize that because we are kind of in our, in our bubble here, but out there, there are so many churches where people just talk about social causes, feel-good things, and fail to even point to Jesus Christ as being the Redeemer. And so Paul says, Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ. Keep your focus on Jesus. And he continues to write this encouragement to Timothy and remind him that Jesus is indeed king. He's resurrected. He is the anointed one, and we should be announcing and following him. Never lose sight of that. Keep your eyes, as Hebrews says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And so Jesus warned during his time how that the very people who were, had the word of God as the source of confidence, yet could also know the scriptures, search the scriptures, and even miss Jesus of the scriptures. 
And he's warning Timothy, look, your confidence has to be in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think of verses like John chapter 5, uh, verses 39 and 40, where Jesus wrote this to the religious leaders of the day. He wrote, you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll have eternal life. You think in the word of scripture you'll have eternal life. But look what he says, but it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And this is Jesus talking. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So get that. They had scripture. They poured over scripture. They tried to study it and and extract from it truth. And they missed the very point of scripture itself, which was Jesus Christ. God's revelation of Jesus himself. And so here's the, the real practical application for us. You have the word. And you can have confidence in this word. But even in your confidence of this word, don't miss the point of the word, which is Jesus Christ. And knowing him, allowing him to work on you and change you, that he is king. And as Romans 8 talks about, that all creation is groaning. And your own body is groaning because you may be getting old like me and feel it groaning or just the groaning of your flesh that, like, why do I have to do that? Or why do I fail with that again? I had a guy tell me last week, he said, most of the time when I'm tempted to do something, I just do the opposite of that because usually it's the flesh that I'm tempted to do this and it's the spirit that is the opposite of what my natural inclination is. And that can be so true. And I think as we grow in our relationship with Christ, and as we grow in maturity in Christ, that tension becomes less and less, and we'll see more things where our default leans toward Christ's likeness, but there's always going to be those things where we just are naturally going to be bent to self-destruction. And those sins that Hebrews talks about are so easily bring us down and throw us off course. We all have those certain things that just, they get, they get us. Maybe yours is anger or pride, or lust, or whatever it is, but those things, you're never going to be, the natural default isn't going to be Christ-likeness for you in those areas. It's going to be a constant battle. But our flesh is going to fight, and we're going to groan, and we're going to be oh, I wish that I could be more like Jesus in these areas of my life. And Jesus wants to meet you, and transform you, and change you through his word. And so he's building Timothy's confidence up in the word, but remember Jesus in the word. And then he writes in verse 9, he says, for which... This, this gospel that I'm preaching, I'm suffering bound with chains like a criminal. And Paul, the beautiful thing is he isn't going to let this imprisonment and the potential of being executed to dampen his spirit or his faith. He's reminding Timothy, Timothy, probably truthfully, buddy, if you follow Jesus like I have, you're probably going to end up very much like me, in trouble, in prison, wearing chains, treated like a common, common criminal. And the thing is, even in our day, we see it coming, but we probably will never be incarcerated for our faith, hopefully, in our lifetime. Could be, but probably not. But the truth of the matter is that there's always going to be resistance from our culture, and there's always going to be resistance from people, but you can move ahead in faith, and you can move ahead with confidence because, look what he says, but the Word of God is not bound. You can tie me up, but you can't tie God's Word up. You can't imprison God's Word and you can't prevent it from doing its work. You can't stop God's word from doing its work. And, and interestingly enough, as you look back over history, you see that as people try to suppress the gospel, 
that we can recognize that's always a sure sign that it is doing its work, that it is making a difference. It's working its way into people's mind as God promised in his word. And so as people get angry about God's word, as they get angry about Jesus, don't let that be a point of, you know, oh, why is that happening? But celebrate the fact that God's word is making inroads into them, into their mind. And they're upset by it because they don't like it, but God is using that to, as we're seeing in a second, to redeem those who are his. Look at it. Paul basically tells Timothy, this mission can't fail. Why? Because he says, Paul says, I'm enduring everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So don't be discouraged. Don't be defeated. Don't be beat down by the society that we live in as they attempt to suppress Jesus, as they attempt to push him down. The mission is progressing. The mission is moving forward, and the resistance is showing that it's, that's the case, and God will fulfill what he wants to fulfill. And as we endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. You know, sadly, this idea of the elect or election rubs a lot of people the wrong way, unfortunately and sadly. Think about this, this term election for a second. And, and if you're a Bible student, if you've read the Bible and studied the Bible, you probably know the tension I'm getting at here. But when we elect an official, what do we do? When we elect a, an official, we what? Choose an official. If somebody's running for an office, we make a choice. We elect them. Are, they are the elect. And the same goes for God and those who will be saved. God chooses those who will be saved. This word chosen and elect are interchangeable. Don't take my word for it. You can go to uh, Bible, netbible.org. I've referenced this site quite a few times where you can look at the word in the English language and cross-reference it to the original language, which in this case is Greek. You look it up, the word election and the word chosen, is, they're, they're moved inter interchangeably throughout the New Testament. These are just the first examples that came up on the screen. And so I'm not making this up or saying this. This is what Scripture says. In the app, I've listed those references for you to look at and explore later. Chosen elect. But here's the thing. If you're, if you're not sure about this whole thing or you're kind of new to this conversation about the tension with election, here, let me help you out for a second, okay? The concept of God electing those who will be saved, that's not the controversial part, okay? So, so rest, you may just know a little bit about this conversation and you're getting like, oh, I don't think that's right. I, that's not the way I heard it, or that's not the way I was brought up. But that's not the controversial part. The controversial part is how and in what manner God chooses those who will be saved. How and in what manner God chooses those who will be saved. And so there's two major views on this. Put it in two camps here. And some would say, well, God knows everything, all right? He, he's brilliant. He's smart. He knows. He created. He knows everything, and he knows who will receive him and who won't. So God, God's choice, choice on who will be saved is based upon his foreknowledge, his foreseeing this. He's looking ahead, and he's seeing these people who will be saved. All right, that's one camp. And then the other camp says this, the elect are based upon God's sovereign choice. Election is God's choice of whom he would save, a choice grounded in himself alone. 
And people get very passionate about this because it's not fair what you're saying. God chooses. God makes a decision. What about all those people who don't get a choice? And, and, and here's the thing. There's tension in Scripture over this. All right? I, first of all, let me say, I threw out the first thing, this idea of God knows. And, you know, just toss that idea because God's sovereign. Word makes it clear God is sovereign. But I don't think you need to get hung up or disturbed over the fact that God elects those who are his. And here's why. There's tension in Scripture. Verses like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes will have eternal life. But then you have to balance that also with passages like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where it's written, Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so here's what I'm going to challenge you to do is to not say it's got to be one or the other. Be okay with the paradox that God chooses, yet we as human beings have real responsibility in this matter. Think back to your salvation. You felt like it was like, i got to choose. I've been presented the gospel, and I'm choosing here whether to accept Jesus or reject Jesus. And it feels very much like to you that it was all on your shoulders. But it wasn't. God worked. God was doing incredible things. God was softening your heart to his truth. And, and so it's not on you that you were smarter than all those other people who didn't believe. It's the fact that God, in his sovereign grace, came to you and softened you and let you respond to the gospel. And I love how that our church, and if you've went through the membership classes and you've seen the bullseye and the, the center section, this is the gospel, and then you go on, out, and out, and these are things that aren't really worth arguing over. And our church really does a great job of trying to strike the balance on some of these controversial issues that have been argued about for generation and century after century to realize that there is this tension that all the times we can't come to this clear conclusion on because, one, if we could, then we could just know the mind of God and we could know how God thinks. And so I, I want to put on the screen, this is our elder statement that's found in a, your membership book. And those who are coming to the Intro to Grace today, which, by the way, is at 5 o'clock, not 4. The, the screen was wrong. It's 5 o'clock today. And if you haven't signed up and you would like to come, I encourage you to come. But this is a statement that's found in our membership book as you proceed in that class and are a part of that class. You get this book that has a lot of these questions and answers. And here's, the, here's what the elder statement is. It says, we also recognize the paradox between the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. Scripture affirms both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. People are responsible for what they do with the gospel or whatever light that they have, Romans chapter 2, so that punishment is just if they reject the light, and, th and those who reject do so voluntarily. We must accept both sides of the truth, though we may not understand how they correspond with one another. And so I love the wisdom of our elders and our church to put a statement out like that because this doesn't have to be something that divides a church. And unfortunately, there's many churches that throw down the gauntlet and say this is, it's either this or that. And the fact is we have real, true responsibility. If you're here 
today, listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have responsibility to make a decision about that truth, the gospel, and put your faith in him. If you choose to believe, if you take, take the step of believing, you're of the elect. If you walk out of here today and say, I don't buy this, this is not for me, I, don't, you know, I, I can't really believe that to be true, and you walk out and you never put your faith in Jesus, you're not of the elect. And you'll be eternally separated from God in hell, Scripture says, because you did not put your faith in Jesus. So you can't blame God. God gives you everything you need if you're hearing this message this morning. And so Paul says, look, he says, I endure everything. All this I'm going through, I endure it for the elect, that they may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying he endures, he keeps on preaching the gospel. Get this, because of a certainty that through his ministry, God will save some. God has a people, he's telling Timothy, God has a people. Keep preaching the word, keep giving the word. Your mission can't fail because God has a people. And your job is to preach Jesus and to give the gospel with passion. And it's God's job to save those he'll save. And what that does to me, it takes the pressure off me. Back in my younger day, I, was, I remember clearly we were at a lock-in at our church in Dallas, Lake Highlands Bible Church in Dallas. And I was talking to some kids about the gospel in the middle of the night, sharing Christ with them. They had come with some friends to this lock-in. And, and there was these, these two girls in particular who seemed interested, and I was sitting there with a couple of the guys who brought them to, uh, uh, to lock in as dates. And I kept pleading, just put your faith in Jesus. Just believe. No, do it. Don't wait. Don't leave here without doing this. And all this pressure was on me, I felt. Like I had to convince them and say just the right things to get them to accept Jesus as their Savior. That's not what the Scripture teaches at all. The Scripture teaches that we preach with power, with authority, with passion. And God is the one who gives the increase, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, Timothy, this gospel that you're, you're, you're struggling with and this 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 uh, struggles that you're having in the church there at Ephesus, these struggles that you're dealing with, Timothy, and these things that I'm dealing with, Timothy, it's worth it in the end because he says, those who obtain salvation, those who are of the elect, they have this eternal glory. He says, salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. By faith, this is what you happens for you. Eternal glory. This light and temporary suffering that we're dealing with, Timothy, it's for a better eternal glory that's in front of you. And now the next thing Paul does, he quotes what was apparently a popular saying during his time, maybe even a song, a few verses from a song, which reinforces this idea that all believers must endure hardship. We all will have struggles. Look at verse 11. He says, The saying is trustworthy, for... If we have died with him, with Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And this idea of dying with him and living with him, 
refers probably to the old self. I've died to myself, Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's that dying that he's talking about more than likely here, This that I no longer live. And so he says there's this exchange, my life for your life. Baptism, beautiful picture. I was talking to someone this past week, a child who's going to be baptized maybe soon, and just explaining how that's a picture of Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, and our old life is gone, our new life has begun. We now are identified with Christ. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here in this trustworthy saying. We've died with him, and now we live with him. And if we endure, the perseverance of the saints is what it's called theologically. We, we, we keep on keeping on. We keep moving, even in our faults and our stumbles, in our weaknesses. We can, can continue on, and we endure. And our endurance is proof that we really know him. And he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And then this idea of dying and, and living reminds me again of, of the words of Jesus in the Gospels where he told them, he said, whoever wants to save his life, he told his disciples this, will lose it in Mark chapter 8. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, that person will save it. And so he's saying to truly live, there's this death that takes place. And baptism is an in, the imagery of it. And then the second part of this statement that was apparently the popular statement going around during Paul's time is a little more difficult to determine exactly what he meant. Look at it. It's kind of like you have two, two expressions, two phrases, and then you have another two phrases, and they seem to be this is the positive side. Maybe is this the negative side? But could be two possibilities here. Look at the, look at the, the verse. It says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. And Jesus said a very similar thing. But then verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So what is he getting at here? Here's two possibilities, all right? Some say that to deny Jesus is much more serious. This is like to be apostate. This is turning around. This is saying, I don't know Jesus. I never believed Jesus. I don't believe you. I don't believe the gospel. I'm going to live as an unbeliever and believe as an unbeliever. And so that's a denial that somebody who truly flat out just says, I don't believe. And then they would say, though, that then this idea of faithless is something that's not quite as serious. So deny is more serious. Faithless is not as serious. And they point to like people like Peter who had faithless moments, as we all do, right? Did you have a faithless moment last week, possibly, where you just did not believe God the way you should have? You doubted God? We all, if we're honest, have those faithless moments. Or it could also mean that faithless means completely abandoning our faith, not believing, not having faith that saves, and therefore others see this as a warning. So some people see it as comfort. If you're faithless, even when you're struggling, God's going to be faithful to you. Other people see it as faithless means I have no faith, and therefore God says, you know what, I'm faithful. I'm faithful to myself. I'm faithful to my word. I don't waver. I don't change. And so because you're faithless, and I'm faithful, therefore I can't, you're not my child. I can't have you in my family. You're not in my family because you don't have the faith to believe. So here, here's the thing, not to overwhelm you here, but just to, get, to, to lay it out clear and simple. Both of these things are true in God's word, either possibility, but there's obviously only one meaning to this exact passage, but both things are true. 
there is a faithlessness that knows not faith, right? There is a faithlessness of somebody who just gives lip service to their faith, but really they don't believe. Scripture talks a lot about that. And, and I think that's where many times people in the church who are members of church find themselves, that they say they believe, but they really don't have saving faith because they're not really that, that exchange, my life for his life. I've never really accepted the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice and put my faith in him. And therefore, I truly am faithless. I don't have faith. But Scripture also affirms the fact that our faith wavers, our faith struggles, that we never have it perfect on this side of eternity. And we're going to, like Peter, have moments where we deny Christ. We should speak up, and we don't. God's Spirit prompts us, speak the gospel, say the gospel, stand for me, and we wither in that moment. And so we have faithless moments. So both are true, whichever one that Paul is referring to here is uncertain, but either way, God remains faithful, he says. God is always faithful. He is always himself. What God is, he always is. God is always who he is. And I don't know about you, maybe you come from a background, a home where there wasn't a lot of faithfulness from your parents, from your family. Maybe you were even put up for adoption or your parents were just awful parents. And you just don't understand how that somebody, you know, that maybe God, you question God's faithfulness because my parents were like that or I've seen that and so I don't really trust God. And God says, I'm faithful. I'm faithful to who I am. I'm faithful to my word. I'm faithful to my character. I can be trusted. I can be trusted. And so no matter what we're going through, no matter how dark things are, we can look and see Jesus, remember Jesus, and trust God's faithfulness for our salvation. I read this this past week as I was studying. It says, when you're feeling empty, think about the empty tomb. When you're feeling empty, move your thoughts. Say, mind I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm going to think on something else. And I'm going to think on the empty tomb. I'm going to remember Jesus. I'm going to focus on Jesus. And so before we go into the hands, head, and heart section, Jeremy had asked me to dismiss the the students who are going to be working today at the barbecue thing. So you can go ahead and go because I don't want you all getting up and everybody looking around saying, where are these guys going? So go, get out of here. Go, run. All right, let's go. Because I want to make sure that we focus in on the application side of this. Your head. Remember Jesus. All right? That's, if there's anything that's, that is intellectual, it's that. Just remember Jesus, as Paul told Timothy. No matter what situation you're in, no matter how beat down you feel, mind, remember Jesus. Remember the empty tomb. Remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember Jesus. And then from our hands, uh, for our heart standpoint, I want us to think about this. Sin hardens our hearts. Confession softens our hearts. And it pries open our hands. Sin hardens our hearts. Confession softens our hearts and pries open our hands. 
I don't know if this is a true story or not, but I was told many times when I was a kid, pastors would use this for an illustration, about the monkey, the way they caught the monkeys back in the old days in the jungle. You ever heard that story where they have a, like a, a, a carved out or, or chiseled out coconut, and they had just a big enough hole for the monkey to stick his hand in to grab whatever goodies that were left in the coconut, and the, the monkey would grab hold of that stuff, and the coconut was tethered to the tree, and the monkey would never let go of what was inside the coconut. And so it was easy for the people to come and catch the monkey because there he was by his own doing, locked in on what he thought his reward was. And that's exactly what we do with sin. We said that that looks so good. It feels so right. It feels better than this gospel that I constantly hear because it's all promised for the future. And I, and I just, I want now, I want what's it for me now. And we buy into the lie that the short-term pleasures of the world are better than God's promises and God's pleasures that he gives us in Christ. And we reach down and we grab hold. And Satan tricks us and deceives us. And we, we're holding on for dear life thinking we got to have this. And here's what, here's what confession is. Confession is, it's a release. It's a release of that thing you're hanging on to. I'm going to let go. I'm going to confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Confession and repentance should be a normal part of your rhythm, of your life. And here's the hand side of it. It really is going to be today just a release I don't know about you, but one of the only times in my life, the periods of my life where I held my hands out like this, was when I was a little kid. If my dad had allowance, I'll take that, right? My, my mom had some candy, oh, yes, and hold my hand out. Because I was a kid, I was dependent, I was needy. And I just opened my hands very naturally because I needed whatever they were giving me. But I don't hold my hands out like this much anymore. Think about it, honestly, do you? Do you hold your hand out much like this anymore? Because as adults, we don't need, right? Our checks go right to the bank. We do our stuff. We live our lives, and rarely do we need. And that attitude permeates our spiritual life as well, that we do this much more naturally than we do this. So for some of you, you're not going to do this because it's awkward, it's weird, and that's okay. But for some of you, what I want you to do is it's a sign of humility. It's a great humility just to say, just as we pray and close, I just want to hold my hands out and receive from God. I'm confessing the stuff that I'm holding on to so tightly, the control that I so often insist upon in my life. And I'm letting go of that. I'm confessing it to God. And just let your hands be a symbol of what's happening in your heart. I'm remembering Jesus and what's important. I'm softening my heart. I'm releasing my grip. I'm opening my hands. Let's pray. God, if there's some people here who just are beat down, who are broken, may even their just body language right now be symbolic of their heart that, is, that feels so needy and they've grasped a hold of sin and deceit and they feel like they're in bondage to Satan. And help them to see as your child, as they remember Jesus and what he did for them on the cross, 
that there's no power that's over them. That they have all the forgiveness they could ever, ever need and want in this life. They've been forgiven of past sins, of present sins, and even future sins because of Jesus and his righteousness. And I pray that right now even they'll confess and just symbolically just release that to you. And God, for those who are just, the life, they're just, they're hurting right now. They feel the guilt and the condemnation or the frustration or the pressures. God, help them just to reach out and receive your grace and your mercies that are new every morning. Help them to receive those right now. In the powerful, strong, amazing name of Jesus, we pray.